Welcome to the Love First Podcast, and I want to thank you for joining us. As I say each time, if this is your first time, thank you for coming along in the conversation, and I want to let you know what this is about. The Love First Podcast is about catalyzing courageous conversations that will help us revolutionize the way we love each other. If you are returning, thank you for being an ongoing part of the conversation. Thank you for liking, subscribing, and sharing. Today, I want to address this question. Why can't we look away? Atlanta is famous for a lot of things, but two that don't always get the best press is how hot it is in the summer and our traffic. Oftentimes, people complain online about how awful the traffic is as if the people that live here don't know it. Trust me, we know it. But one of the most frustrating things is to be stuck in traffic downtown for an hour only to discover that when you finally get to the point of the blockage, it's on the other side of the freeway. And you think to yourself, come on, people, you've got to be kidding But we all know why the traffic stopped. It's because we can't look away from a tragedy. But I want to rephrase the question for today. Why we can't look away. So I want you to consider with me for a few moments what it's been like for you, the conversations you've been in, the things you've posted, the things you've done since a week ago when the world was awakened to a tragedy in Brunswick, Georgia, where a young man, Ahmaud Arbery, was murdered. Did you run? Did you post online? Did you give something to a justice organization, or to some cause that will make a difference. What did you do? Well, first of all, I want to commend you for taking the time to mourn and lament and to mark this tragedy. But have you since looked away? Has your attention drifted? You see, One of the things we realize is is that even though we are drawn to look at a tragedy, we only want to look at it for so long because it is so unsettling. Our minds don't want to dwell on that much stress. We don't like the feeling of taking in all of the, quote, gory details for too long. We have fatigue that sets in. So quite often, the way that our minds begin to work is we begin to filter out what we don't want to continue to focus on. I believe that the reason that we do that is we find ourselves wanting to think about life in a way that is manageable for us. We want to think about, how am I going to get through the day? If I dwell on this too long, then will I just sink into a depression? Or will I live in constant rage? And I think we all understand that. But if we find ourselves looking away too soon, or 
only focusing on a particular part of a situation, then we can end up really missing what's happening. I'd like you to think about it this way. When you consider marking a moment where we want to make sure that people never forget what happened here, this is a common practice throughout history. Let me give you a few examples of this. When we think about the famous Gettysburg Address, November 1863, Abraham Lincoln followed a two-hour oration, which was not that uncommon at that time, and then he stepped up and delivered approximately 10 sentences and a little over 270 words, but within that is this sentence, the world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. They wanted to make sure that we never forgot why people gave their lives that way. Dwight Eisenhower, upon coming across the German Nazi death camps at the close of World War II, said this, get it all on record now. Get the films, get the witnesses, because somewhere down the road of history, some will get up and say, this never happened. Deeper into his papers to George Marshall, he said this, If you would see any advantage in asking a dozen leaders of Congress and a dozen prominent editors to make a short visit to this theater in a couple of C-54s, I will arrange to have them conducted to one of these places where the evidence of bestiality and cruelty is so overpowering as to leave no doubt in their minds of what happened here. They wanted it marked. Many people have made a pilgrimage to the cemeteries at Normandy where gravestone after gravestone spread out across the countryside in perfect symmetry, in sacred remembrance of what happened there. Photographers have been brought back to Rwanda in 10-year increments since the genocide of 1994 to document what happened there. A few weeks ago on the Love First podcast, we had Thomas Naibo, a world-renowned journalist who documents these kinds of atrocities all over the world because we don't want to forget. But as we're looking at these stories, it is important for us to realize that we have a tendency to either look at the story in such general terms that we miss the individual impact, or we focus so much on one episode that we miss the overall story. I'll illustrate this for you in one of my early visits to the Vietnam Memorial. My wife and I were living in Indiana where I was a pastor of a church there for nine years. One of our elders, Carl Bowen, 
had been, is a Vietnam veteran, one of his best friends from central Indiana had gone to the war as well. Carl came home and Michael did not. Carl told me the story. Carl invited me to read the book, The Long Gray Line, which tells the story of the Vietnam War, the class of 1966, the building of the Vietnam Memorial. As I read the book, Carl shared with me personal photo albums and uh, personal stories from the war. And then my wife and I went to Washington, D.C. We went to the Vietnam memorial. When we got there, we stood back and looked at this long stretch of black granite that as of 2019 has over 58,000 names on it. But we focused on W46 and one name, Michael Nathy, Carl's friend. You see, the Vietnam memorial itself tells a powerful story. But Michael Nathy is also his own powerful story. If we're not careful, we can so focus on the big story, the big picture, that we miss the pixel. But we can also so focus on the pixel that we miss the big picture. When we refuse to look away and we stay in the conversation and discipline ourselves to look at the individual stories as well as the systemic story, then what we're saying to people that are impacted by these stories is we care as much as possible. We want to enter your story, your space. Now, as I've shared the last couple of weeks, I want to identify my place in this conversation. I am white. This year, I will turn 60. I am a male. I live in a middle-class suburb of Atlanta. I want to clarify that when I join this conversation, I am joining as a participant that we illustrated last week that has a small voice. But I cannot excuse my silence just because I am white or because I'm male or because of my age. So we're not going to use my demographic as an excuse for silence or for looking away. But I'm also not going to suppose that just because I've read a few books or I've read a few articles that I understand what it means to be a person of color living through the systemic racism that we've been highlighting these last few weeks. We started a few weeks ago by identifying a key component that causes division throughout history, and that's negative categorization. This comes out of a word used in the New Testament, categoria, to describe categorization for the sake of accusation. It is putting people in a particular way of imagining them, 
a categorization of imagination that says they we should be more suspicious of them, they are probably more dangerous, they probably are up to no good, and then we imagine people like us in another form of categorization that we're probably safer, we probably have good intent, we probably have good reasons for what we do. When we make choices, there's probably a good explanation, and it is within those two competing categorizations that all the disunity and damage is fomented and carried out. So we're not unaware of the impact of categorization for the sake of accusation. But then we begin to ask this question. In in realizing that that is at work in our culture, that negative categorization, how do we overcome it? If we own the fact that our implicit memories, that culturalization that we grew up in, formed implicit bias. That we have these these programs working within us like a computer that are running and functioning and we don't even know they're happening, but they are causing us in a moment to make all kinds of decisions. So we're looking at color, gender. We're listening for accents and language. We're paying attention to all that. We don't even know we're doing it. And we're making categorical decisions based on those implicit biases. So if we don't address those, they will just keep on functioning and we won't realize why we're doing what we're doing. So we're going to try to address that in some constructive ways. I want you to think about this with me from Scripture, and we're actually going to look at two verses centered around the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The first one is in Luke chapter 23 and verse 35. Luke 23, 35. This is the crucifixion scene, and here's what the Bible says. The people stood watching. They just stood there watching. People were taking it in. Now, it was gruesome. And of course, Jesus isn't the only crucifixion that's going on in that moment. We know there's two other people crucified with him. That wasn't the only one that week. That wasn't the only one in the empire that year. This was going on all across the Roman Empire. But people, So people were used to that form of death. But their eyes were fixed on the spectacle of crucifixion. The second passage is in John chapter 19. And in John chapter 19, it says in verse 37, and as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Now, let's begin with the pixel. Let's begin with the small part of the picture. Now, why would we begin there? One of the reasons that we start with the pixel is because that's where we as humans start. We begin with survival instincts even if we don't know it. We begin with what's right in front of us, and we make decisions that way. So because we're functioning off of what's right in front of us in the moment, you do realize that's why we're still alive. 
because that's a survival instinct that says if we hear something, if we see something we know is dangerous, we can quickly move, we can quickly adjust, or hopefully we can, and that that will keep us from being injured or potentially being killed. So we begin with what's right in front of us. That's natural. When the news comes on and there's a tragedy, we begin with how we understand it initially. We have an immediate response that's kind of formed in that limbic system of the brain, which is a reactionary response. We're for it or against it. We like it or we don't. We'd vote for it and we'd vote against it. We think it's a good story. We think it's a bad story. We think it's fake news. We think it's true news. We do all of that almost instantaneously. That's where we begin. So why fight it? Let's begin there. So if we begin with the pixel of Jesus on the cross, take the two scriptures that I've just read, the people stood around watching and the fulfillment of the prophecy, you will look on the one they have pierced. So what do you see? What comes to your mind's eye when you read that text? The people stood around and watched. The rulers sneered. What are you feeling when people mocked him, spit on him? When they said things like, let him call out to God to rescue him if he wants him. What do you hear? You can tell my, by my tone of voice what I hear. I see a crowd that lacks empathy. I see a lynch mob. I see people that could care less what happens to this human. But what if I reminded you that in the crowd that was watching was his mother and some of her closest friends? Ooh. Okay, so now we see more, don't we? The picture begins to pan out a little bit, doesn't it? Now we're thinking, okay, so not everyone in the crowd was experiencing it the same way. Not everyone in the crowd was feeling the same thing. Not everyone in the crowd saw the same thing. Some people are sitting there seeing a criminal that they can just mock. Other, another person in the crowd has seen her own son with life ebbing out of his body, the body that was formed in her womb. So what do you see? So if we moved from that scene to the scene of Ahmaud Arbery, could we not approach it similarly? That we have people in perhaps what we could call concentric circles. The closest, his mother and father, Wanda and Marcus, family members, close friends, but then witnesses, people that have strong feelings about the case one way or the other, the general uh, population, the international population. If you've read anything online, you realize that the further the concentric circles go out, the crazier the thoughts can get. I'd like to move to another case. I'd actually like to move to the case of Damon Shepard outside of Wilmington, North Carolina, in Pender County, Avondale, on the evening of May 3rd, 2020. He's a high school senior. He's sitting at home, in his home, one of two families of color 
in that neighborhood, in a predominantly white neighborhood. He's playing video games out in the front yard, not dissimilar from graduates all across the country. There's signs with his name and the class of 2020 and so on. And suddenly, an armed mob shows up on his front porch, banging on the door. He's startled. He opens the door. And there before him, in uniform, is an off-duty officer of the law, armed, flanked by another person with a shotgun and another one with a semiotic weapon, flanked by another 15 people, all of them white, he being black, and they're demanding to know where a missing girl is that they believe is with him in their home. A 15-year-old girl. He tells them, I'm not that person. I don't know that girl. You've got the wrong guy. They're not having it. Mob mentality has taken over. As he's yelling, as he's frantic, trying to, trying to explain what's happening to these, this armed mob, his mother is awakened. She comes flying into the room. She gets to the door. She's trying to tell them, you've got the wrong person. They're demanding to come in. They are going to search that house. Now, bear in mind, this is an off-duty officer of the law who is not fulfilling the law. She says, you're not coming and tries to close the door. He puts his foot in the door to make it so she can't close the door. She keeps trying to explain that the person they're looking for, whose name is Josiah, used to live next door, had moved away over a month ago, and they had the wrong house. And slowly, much like the mob that brought the woman caught in adultery before Jesus, they begin to awaken that they're at the wrong place, this is the wrong house, and they're doing the wrong thing, and they begin to dissipate. And they leave. And eventually, so does this off-duty law officer and the two armed people that flanked him. Okay. You may have heard of the story. But then in a not unfamiliar narrative, no charges were filed. No charges were filed. As if, oh man, sorry, made a mistake. Hey, you know, uh, all, all's well that ends well. No, all's well, that's not all's well that ends well because it didn't end well. Yes, you left. Thankfully, someone wasn't shot and killed again, as has happened so often. Can we, along with Ahmad Arbery's name, say Brianna Taylor, 26-year-old EMT, shot and killed in Louisville? Can we say these names? Can we keep repeating these names so that in looking at the big picture, we don't miss the pixel, but in looking at the pixel, we begin to understand the big picture? Well, finally, they began to take action. They fired the law officer. Clearly, 
Then they began to press charges against those who were trespassing and terrorizing with an armed or terrorizing while armed. Here's the question. Why is this happening? And I'm going to ask you, have you had a tendency to look away? Do you hear these stories and look away? Do you hear the story and think, well, that's just, that's just race baiting. That's just the media trying to inflame a race war. Do you look away and think, that's not me. I'm not a racist. I wouldn't do that. A person that does that isn't like me. When we look away, we participate in the ongoing systemic problem. When we look away, when we silence our voices, when we say, we're so sorry, that was an aberration, I'm sorry that that happened to you, we assume that the pixel and the picture are the same. But they're not. Because that's not an isolated incident. So now what I'm going to ask you to do is to do a little homework because I think the best way to approach this is to look at what we're using the metaphor, the pixel, of the Damon Shepard incident, May 3rd, 2020, but then to pan back and put it into the bigger picture by researching Wilmington, North Carolina, Wilmington Massacre, 1898. You see, because Damon's story takes place just outside of Wilmington, and in the news stories, you will see Hanover County, Pender County. When you do this homework, you're going to see the same names and the same locations. So let's start with 1898. You're talking basically 33 years after the end of the Civil War. But you're also talking about approximately 26 years after the demise of Reconstruction. So during the 12 years or so following the Civil War, there was a tremendous movement taking place to try to implement more equity in the United States. But that was met with fierce resistance. And in 18, in the years leading up to the 1898 massacre, there were elements in Wilmington who wanted to see the restoration of the previous hierarchical order of white supremacy. So these nine individuals, later known as the Secret Nine, began to inflame the unrest among all kinds of issues, using their networks, not just in-state, but out-of-state, to begin to characterize the whole problem of economics and crime and all of that centered around the characterization, the categorization for accusation of the hyper-dangerous black male. These strategists using drawings, cartoons, newspaper articles, op-ed, flyers, orators began to disseminate this characterization, say it with me, 
categorization for the sake of accusation in all of their communication. It basically said every single problem we face ultimately is because of the hyper-dangerous black male. And you need to understand that I am cleaning up the language that they used. This got traction, and it lit the fires. In fact, it crossed state lines to where a prominent politician in Georgia, his wife, Rebecca Latimer Felton, wrote or said this, August 11th, 1897. When there is not enough religion in the pulpit to organize a crusade against sin, nor justice in the courthouse to promptly punish crime, nor manhood enough in the nation to put a sheltering arm about innocence and virtue, if it needs lynching to protect a woman's dearest possession from the ravening human beasts, then I say lynch a thousand times a week if necessary. That speech was published and republished and quoted all across the South and especially in the fomenting of the Wilmington fires of racial hatred. Threats were made that they would fill, clog, clog the waterway to the ocean with bodies, if necessary, to guard white females from these black, brutal, aggressive men. Alexander Manley was the black newspaper editor in Wilmington, and he responded to Rebecca Felton. And in his response, he basically said, I do not disagree. Women absolutely need to be protected, all women, white and women of color. But your characterization of the black male as dangerous actually shields or shadows the violence of the white male toward white women and toward women of color. So the statistics will not bear out your accusation that somehow the black male is dangerous, let alone more dangerous than the white male. She immediately fired back and suggested that rather than him being in the newspaper business, he ought to get used to the lynching rope. Several of Manley's friends said, you've got to go into hiding. We've got to protect you. They moved his printing press. There were several places that were not willing to rent him space for fear of arson, all of which came true. Eventually, it was burned to the ground, as were many buildings. Many people were murdered. The estimates range from 60 to 300 people of color murdered in the ensuing violence. And Wilmington was never the same after. Politicians embedded themselves in a fierce campaign to restore white supremacy, and they did. You might say to yourself, 
Ah, I hate going over this history. I know. It is tempting to look away, isn't it? I know. But this is an ancient history. You see, if you fast forward 100 years to 1998, commissions were formed in Wilmington to try to address what happened in 1898. And the ongoing economic impact health impact, family impact on people of color that was never mended in all the ensuing years. It continued. But in, 18, in 1998, they didn't have much more success. The conversations eventually came to a standoff where those that were the descendants on both sides found it very difficult to continue the conversation because those who were descendants of the white supremacist movement refused to apologize, saying, it wasn't us, we didn't do it, we have nothing to apologize for, without accepting that what happened in 1898 was still benefiting them to this day. And Wilmington still waits. Oh, there are beautiful people in Wilmington that are trying to work this out, trying to have the conversation, but the conversation is still waiting for that healing experience to come. And the Damon Shepherd moment, the Damon Shepherd pixel is a part of that big picture, that big story. So don't look away. Don't look away from Damon Shepherd's porch. And don't look away from the 1898 picture because they all tell the same story that when people look away, others are oppressed. So what will we do? Clifford Geertz, Dr. Clifford Geertz, was one of the foremost anthropologists of the 20th century. He wrote about what we might term a theory of thick and thin. He talked about the way that anthropology had been done at one time, which was basically an observe and report approach. Uh, a trained anthropologist go among a people, they stay with them a certain amount of time, they observe, they take notes, they uh, uh, come to uh, basically some conclusions about the people, and then they report on these people, and they tell their story. Geertz would go on to describe that as thin anthropology, a thin story, that to observe and report leaves out too many of the variables that would fully tell a person's or a people's story. Thick, the theory of thick, was different. It still include, included observation and reporting, but it included so much more. It included engagement. It included receiving the narratives of others and that that remain an ongoing open narrative. So let me illustrate this. So the question might be, so you're an anthropologist and you go to visit some remote people and you're there and, and you begin to observe and then you find out 
that they have just come off of a 10-year civil war. Well, one of the questions that Dr. Gertz or Gertz would have encouraged us to ask is, what would it have been like if you'd have shown up 120 months earlier? Prior to the Civil War, what would you have learned about these people? What if you had come 60 months earlier in the middle of the Civil War? How are these people experiencing life differently at the end of a 10-year civil war. Now, could you not expand that in multiple ways? What if you showed up before a 10-year famine? What if you showed up in the middle of a 10-year famine? What if you showed up at the end of a 10-year famine? How would you then report on what these people are like and the stories these people would tell? Think about generations in the United States. If someone tells the story of our country in 1789, what might be the headlines of the story then? What if we tell the story in 1801? What if we tell the story in 1812? What if we tell the story in 1861, 1863 at Gettysburg, or 1865? What if we tell the story in 1876 or 1898 in Wilmington or... 1906 in Atlanta? Or what about 1929? What about 1939? What about 1945? What about, especially during COVID-19, what if we told the story in 1918- and 1919. What if we told the story September 12th, 2001? You see, what Geertz was arguing for is that a thin telling of the story leaves actually leaves out what makes the story. It leaves out the details, the big pictures, the small pictures that interact with one another, the way the pixel and the picture interact to tell the full story, the way that systemic racism needs to be understood as we look at the front porch May 3rd of Damon Shepard's house outside of Wilmington, North Carolina. You see, his story matters, and it is, on its own, an important story, but it's part of a bigger story. And when we refuse to turn away from the big picture and the small picture, when we refuse to turn away from the picture and the pixel, then we are more faithful to what's actually happening and we can participate and empathize with what is happening. We can hear other people tell the story from their own impact and experience and they can tell that we're listening, that we care about why the story means something to them that way. Many years ago, my family and I had the opportunity with my wife's parents to go to Hawaii. I'd never been there. My, uh, I'd always wanted to go. And one of the things I wanted to see, because I love history, is I wanted to go to Pearl Harbor and I wanted to see the Arizona Memorial. So we, as a family, we went down and stood in line 
where we would go through a long line and a brief orientation, get on a boat that would ferry us across the water and take us to the memorial of the Arizona. When we got into line, there were some people in front of us, a family, that was just chattering. And they had all kinds of questions. And they were very loud. And it was crystal clear that that was unacceptable to the soldier that was there that was doing the orientation. And one of the people in the family asked the question, where is this uh, uh, tourist attraction? Tourist attraction. They wanted to know, were they there? They didn't understand we were going to get on a boat and go across to the site. Where is the tourist attraction? To which the soldier in charge responded, this is not a tourist attraction. This is a memorial. It was silent. Not just that family, but all of us who needed a reorientation to the story. This wasn't just a sunken ship from a forgotten time. But this was a part of the narrative of life that tells the story of the world, tells a vital chapter in the story of not just the 20th century, but every day since then. If you've gone to the 9-11 memorial, perhaps you've felt the same way. What I would like to suggest is this. In these conversations that we're having on the Love First podcast, we are being faithful to the spirit of Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, of Dwight Eisenhower's call to witness the Holocaust, and to all the other memorials I've mentioned, that we are saying we will not look away. Now, I want to thank you for joining us for the Love First podcast. And I want to let you know that we are preparing for another conversation that will unfold in the next several weeks. I'm working together right now with a close friend of mine who has a son that experienced a traumatic brain injury about 18 and a half years ago. And we're going to begin to tell another story, a story of the challenges that people with disabilities face in our society. I want you to begin preparing for that. And why am I bringing that up in, at the close of this podcast? Because I have to say to you, that is a part of the picture that I did not pay attention to. Even though I have known his son his whole life, and even though he's been a part of our church his whole life, I looked at that pixel and missed the systemic challenges that are facing the disabled community. Through my friend's commitment and patience and conviction, I've recognized that in my own life, I've got to step back and allow that beautiful pixel to invite me into the bigger picture. I'm asking you, through the story of Ahmad Arbery, 
or Brianna Taylor or Damon Shepard to allow those pixels to draw us in to the bigger story. Thank you so much for joining us for the Love First podcast. Would you please like, subscribe, and share? And we'll see you next time. Love first, I know. Love first, I know. Lord, take